Part nineteen of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal, Saturday, August the fifth, eighteen fifty four. Chapter thirty three. Day and night again, day and night again. No Stephen Blackpool. Where was the man, and why did he not come back? Every night Sissy went to Rachel's lodging and sat with her in her small neat room. All day Rachel toiled as such people must toil, whatever their anxieties. The smoke serpents were indifferent who was lost or found, who turned out bad or good. The melancholy mad elephants, like the hard fact men, abated nothing of their set routine, whatever happened. Day and night again, day and night again. The monotony was unbroken. Even Stephen Blackpool's disappearance was falling into the general way and becoming as monotonous a wonder as any piece of machinery in Coketown. I misdoubt, said Rachel, if there is as many as twenty left in all this place who have any trust in the poor dear lad now. She said it to Sissy as they sat in her lodging, lighted only by the lamp at the street corner. Sissy had come there when it was already dark to await her return from work, and they had since sat at the window where Rachel had found her, wanting no brighter light to shine on their sorrowful talk. "'If it hadn't been mercifully brought about that I was to have you to speak to,' pursued Rachel, "'times are when I think my mind would not have kept right. But I get hope and strength through you, and you believe that though appearances may rise against him, he will be proved clear.' I do believe so, returned Sissy, with my whole heart. I feel so certain, Rachel, that the confidence you hold in yours against all discouragement is not like to be wrong, that I have no more doubt of him than if I'd known him through as many years of trial as you have. And I, my dear, said Rachel with a tremble in her voice, have known him through them all to be, according to his quiet ways, so faithful to everything honest and good that if he was never to be heard of more, and I was to live to be a hundred years old, I could say with my last breath, God knows my heart, I've never once left trusting Stephen Blackpool. We all believe, up at the lodge, Rachel, that he will be freed from suspicion sooner or later. The better I know it to be so believed there, my dear, said Rachel, and the kinder I feel it that you come away from there, purposely to comfort me, and keep me company and be seen wi' me when I'm not yet free from all suspicion myself. The more grieved I am that I should ever have spoken those mistrusting words to the young lady. And yet, you don't mistrust her now, Rachel. Now that you've brought us more together, no. But I can't at all times keep out of my mind. Her voice so sunk into a low and slow communing with herself that Sissy, sitting by her side, was obliged to listen with attention. I can't at all times keep out of my mind mistrustings of someone. I can't think who tis. I can't think how or why it may be done. But I mistrust that someone has put Stephen out of the way. I mistrust that by his coming back of his own accord and showing himself innocent before them all, someone will be confounded, who, to prevent that, has stopped him and put him out of the way. That's a dreadful thought said Sissy, turning pale. It is a dreadful thought to think he may be murdered. 
Sissy shuddered and turned paler yet. When it makes its way into my mind, dear, said Rachel, and it will come sometimes, though I do all I can to keep it out, we counting on to high numbers as a work, and saying over and over again pieces that I knew when I were a child, I fall into such a wild, hot hurry, that however tired I am, I want to walk fast, miles and miles. I must get the better of this before bedtime. I'll walk home with you. You might fall ill upon the journey back, said Sissy, faintly offering a worn-out scrap of hope, and in such a case there are many places on the road where he might stop. But he is in none of them. He has been sought for in all, and he's not there. True, was Sissy's reluctant admission. He'd walked the journey in two days. If he was footsore and couldn't walk, I sent him in the letter he got the money to ride, lest he should have none of his own to spare. Let's hope that tomorrow morning will bring something better, Rachel. Come into the air. Her gentle hand adjusted Rachel's shawl upon her shining black hair in the usual manner of her wearing it, and they went out. The night being fine, little knots of hands were here and there lingering at street corners, but it was supper time with the greater part of them, and there were but few people in the streets. You're not so hurried now, Rachel, and your hand is cooler. I get better, dear, if I can only walk and breathe a little fresh. Times when I can't, I turn weak and confused. But you must not begin to fail, Rachel, for you may be wanted at any time to stand by Stephen. Tomorrow is Saturday. If no news comes tomorrow, let us walk in the country on Sunday morning and strengthen you for another week. Will you go? Yes, dear. They were by this time in the street, where Mr. Bounderby's house stood. The way to Sissy's destination led them past the door, and they were going straight towards it. Some train had newly arrived in Coketown, which had put a number of vehicles in motion, and scattered a considerable bustle about the town. Several coaches were rattling before them, and behind them as they approached Mr. Bounderby's, and one of the latter drew up with such briskness as they were in the act of passing the house, that they looked round involuntarily. The bright gaslight over Mr. Bounderby's steps showed them Mrs. Sparsit in the coach, in an ecstasy of excitement, struggling to open the door. Mrs. Sparsit, seeing them at the same moment, called to them to stop. "'It's a coincidence!' exclaimed Mrs. Sparsit as she was released by the coachman. "'It's a providence!' "'Come out, ma'am,' then said Mrs. Sparsit to someone inside. "'Come out!' We'll have you dragged out. Hereupon, no other than the mysterious old woman descended, whom Mrs. Sparsit incontinently collared. Leave her alone, everybody, cried Mrs. Sparsit with great energy. Let nobody touch her. She belongs to me. Come in, ma'am. Then said Mrs. Sparsit, reversing her former word of command. Come in, ma'am. We'll have you dragged in. The spectacle of a matron of classical deportment seizing an ancient woman by the throat and hailing her into a dwelling-house would have been under any circumstances sufficient temptation to all true english stragglers so blessed as to witness it to force a way into that dwelling-house and see the matter out but when the phenomenon was enhanced by the notoriety and mystery by this time associated all over the town with the bank robbery it would have lured the stragglers in with an irresistible attraction though the roof had been expected to fall upon their heads. Accordingly, the chance witnesses on the ground, consisting of the busiest of the neighbours to the number of some five and twenty, 
closed in after Sissy and Rachel, as they closed in after Mrs. Sparsit and her prize, and the whole body made a disorderly eruption into Mr. Bounderby's dining room, where the people behind lost not a moment's time in mounting on the chairs to get a better view, to get the better of the people in front. Fetch Mr. Bounderby down, cried Mrs. Sparsit. Rachel, young woman, you know who this is? It's Mrs. Pegler, said Rachel. I should think it is, cried Mrs. Sparsit, exulting. Fetch Mr. Bounderby. Stand away, everybody. Here old Mrs. Pegler, muffling herself up and shrinking from observation, whispered a word of entreaty. Don't tell me, said Mrs. Sparsit aloud. I have told you twenty times coming along that I will not leave you until I have handed you over to him myself. Mr. Bounderby now appeared, accompanied by Mr. Gradgrind and the whelp, with whom he had been holding conference upstairs. Mr. Bounderby looked more astonished than hospitable at the sight of this uninvited party in his dining-room. "'Why, what's the matter now?' said he. "'Mrs. Sparsit, ma'am.' "'Sir,' explained that worthy woman, "'I trust it is my good fortune to produce a person you have much desired to find.' stimulated by my wish to relieve your mind sir and connecting together such imperfect clues to the part of the country in which that person might be supposed to reside as have been afforded by the young woman rachel fortunately now present to identify i have had the happiness to succeed and to bring that person with me i need not say most unwillingly on her part it has not been sir without some trouble that i have effected this but trouble in your service is to me a pleasure, and hunger, thirst, and cold a real gratification. Here Mrs. Sparsit ceased, for Mr. Bounderby's visage exhibited an extraordinary combination of all possible colours and expressions of discomfiture, as old Mrs. Pegler was disclosed to his view. Why, what do you mean by this? was his highly unexpected demand in great wrath. I ask you. "'What do you mean by this, Mrs. Sparsit, ma'am?' "'Sir,' exclaimed Mrs. Sparsit, faintly. "'Why don't you mind your own business, ma'am?' roared Bounderby. "'How dare you go and poke your officious nose into my family affairs?' The allusion to her favourite feature overpowered Mrs. Sparsit. She sat down stiffly in a chair, as if she were frozen and with a fixed stare at Mr. Bounderby, slowly grated her mittens against one another, as if they were frozen too. "'My dear Josiah,' cried Mrs. Pegler, trembling, "'my darling boy, I'm not to blame. It's not my fault, Josiah. I told this lady over and over again that I knew she was doing what would not be agreeable to you, but she would do it.' "'What did you let her bring you for? Couldn't you knock her cap off?' "'Or a tooth out, a scratcher, a do something or other to her?' asked Bounderby. "'My own boy. She threatened me that if I resisted her, I should be brought by constables, and it was better to come quietly than make that stir in such a—' Mrs. Pegler glanced timidly but proudly round the walls. "'Such a fine house as this. Indeed, indeed, it is not my fault. My dear, noble, stately boy—' I've always lived quiet and secret, Josiah, my dear. I've never broken the condition once. I've never said that I was your mother. I've admired you at a distance, and if I've come to town sometimes, with long times between, to take a proud peep at you, 
I've done it unbeknown, my love, and gone away again. Mr. Bounderby, with his hands in his pockets, walked in impatient mortification up and down at the side of the long dining-table, while the spectators greedily took in every syllable of Mrs. Pegler's appeal, and at each succeeding syllable became more and more round-eyed. Mr. Bounderby, still walking up and down when Mrs. Pegler had done, Mr. Gradgrind addressed that maligned old lady. "'I am surprised, madam,' he observed with severity, "'that in your old age you have the face to claim Mr. Bounderby for your son, "'after your unnatural and inhuman treatment of him.' "'Me? Unnatural?' cried poor old Mrs. Pegler. "'Me? Inhuman? To my dear boy?' "'Dear,' repeated Mr. Gradgrind, "'yes.' dear in his self-made prosperity madam i dare say not very dear however when you deserted him in his infancy and left him to the brutality of a drunken grandmother i deserted my josiah cried mrs pegler clasping her hands now lord forgive you sir for your wicked imaginations and for your scandal against the memory of my poor mother who died in my arms before josiah was born may you repent of it sir and live to know better she was so very earnest and injured that mr gradgrind shocked by the possibility which dawned upon him said in a gentler tone do you deny then madam that you left your son to be brought up in the gutter josiah in the gutter exclaimed mrs pegler no such thing sir never for shame on you my dear boy knows and he will give you to know that though he come of humble parents, he come of parents that loved him as dear as the best could, and never thought it hardship on themselves to pinch a bit that he might write and cipher beautiful, and I've his books at home to show it. Aye, have I, said Mrs. Pegler with indignant pride. And my dear boy knows, and will give you to know, sir, that after his beloved father died when he was eight years old, his mother too could pinch a bit, as it was her duty and her pleasure and her pride to do it, to help him out in life and put him prentice. And a steady lad he was, and a kind master he had to lend him a hand, and well he worked his own way forward to be rich and thriving. And I'll give you to know, sir, for this my dear boy won't, that though his mother kept but a little village shop, he never forgot her, but pensioned me on thirty pound a year, more than I want, for I put by out of it, only making the condition that I was to keep down in my own part and make no boasts about him and not trouble him, and I never have, except with looking at him once a year when he has never knowed it. And it's right, said poor old Mrs. Pegler, in an affectionate championship, that I should keep down in my own part, and I have no doubts that if I was here I should do a many unbefitting things, and I'm well contented, and I can keep me pride in my Josiah to myself and I can love for love's own sake. And I'm ashamed of you, sir, said Mrs. Pegler lastly, for your slanders and suspicions. And I never stood here before, nor never wanted to stand here when my dear son said no. And I shouldn't be here now if it hadn't been for being brought here. And for shame upon you, oh, for shame, to accuse me of being a bad mother to my son, with my son standing here to tell you so different. The bystanders, on and off the dining-room chairs, raised a murmur of sympathy with Mrs. Pegler, and Mr. Gradgrind felt himself innocently placed in a very distressing predicament, when Mr. Bounderby, who had never ceased walking up and down, 
and had every moment swelled larger and larger and grown redder and redder stopped short i don't exactly know said mr bounderby how i come to be favoured with the attendance of the present company but i don't inquire when they're quite satisfied perhaps they'll be so good as to disperse whether they're satisfied or not perhaps they'll be so good as to disperse i'm not bound to deliver a lecture on my family affairs i've not undertaken to do it and i'm not going to do it therefore those who expect any explanation whatever upon that branch of the subject will be disappointed particularly tom gradgrind and he can't know it too soon in reference to the bank robbery there has been a mistake made concerning my mother if there hadn't been over officiousness it wouldn't have been made and i hate over officiousness at all times whether or no good evening although mr bounderby carried it off in these terms holding the door open for the company to depart there was a blustering sheepishness upon him at once extremely crestfallen and superlatively absurd detected as the bully of humility who had built his windy reputation upon lies and in his boastfulness had put the honest truth as far away from him as if he had advanced the mean claim there is no meaner to tack himself on to a pedigree he cut a most ridiculous figure with the people filing off at the door he held who he knew would carry what had passed to the whole town to be given to the four winds he could not have looked a bully more shorn and forlorn if he had had his ears cropped even that unlucky female mrs sparsett fallen from her pinnacle of exultation into the slough of despond was not in so bad a plight as that remarkable man and self-made humbug josiah bounderby of corktown rachel and sissy leaving mrs pegler to occupy a bed at her son's for that night walked together to the gate of stone lodge and there parted mr gradgrind joined them before they had gone very far and spoke with much interest of stephen blackpool for whom he thought this signal failure of the suspicious against mrs pegler was likely to work well as to the wealth throughout this scene as on all other late occasions he had stuck close to bounderby he seemed to feel that as long as bounderby could make no discovery without his knowledge he was so far safe he never visited his sister and had only seen her once since she went home that is to say on the night when he still stuck close to bounderby as already related there was one dim unformed fear lingering about his sister's mind to which he never gave utterance which surrounded the graceless and ungrateful boy with a dreadful mystery the same dark possibility had presented itself in the same shapeless guise this very day to sissy when rachel spoke of someone who would be confounded by stephen's return having put him out of the way louisa had never spoken of harbouring any suspicion of her brother in connection with the robbery she and sissy had held no confidence on the subject save in that one interchange of looks when the unconscious father rested his grey head on his hand but it was understood between them and they both knew it this other fear was so awful that it hovered about each of them like a ghostly shadow neither daring to think of its being near herself far less of its being near the other and still the forced spirit which the whelp had plucked up throve with him if stephen blackpool was not the thief let him show himself why didn't he another night another day and night 
no Stephen Blackpool. Where was the man, and why did he not come back? Chapter 24 The Sunday was a bright Sunday in autumn, clear and cool, when early in the morning Sissy and Rachel met to walk in the country. As Coketown cast ashes not only on its own head, but on the neighbourhoods too, after the manner of those pious persons who do penance for their own sins by putting other people into sackcloth, it was customary for those who now and then thirsted for a draught of pure air, which is not absolutely the most wicked among the vanities of life, to get a few miles away by the railroad, and then begin their walk or their lounge in the fields. Sissy and Rachel helped themselves out of the smoke by the usual means, and were put down at a station about midway between the town and Mr. Bounderby's retreat. Though the green landscape was blotted here and there with heaps of coal, it was green elsewhere, and there were trees to see, and there were larks singing, though it was Sunday, and there were pleasant scents in the air, and all was overarched by a bright blue sky. In the distance one way, Coketown showed as a black mist. In another distance, hills began to rise. In a third, there was a faint change in the light of the horizon, where it shone upon the far-off sea. Under their feet the grass was fresh, beautiful shadows of branches flickered upon it and speckled it, hedgerows were luxuriant, everything was at peace. Engines at pits' mouths, and lean old horses that had worn the circle of their daily labour into the ground, were alike quiet. Wheels had ceased for a short space to turn, and the great wheel of earth seemed to revolve without the shocks and noises of another time. They walked on across the fields and down the shady lanes, sometimes getting over a fragment of a fence so rotten that it dropped at a touch of the foot, sometimes passing near a wreck of bricks and beams overgrown with grass, marking the site of deserted works. They followed paths and tracks, however slight, mounds where the grass was rank and high, and where brambles, dockweed, and such-like vegetation were confusedly heaped together, they always avoided, for dismal stories were told in that country of the old pits hidden beneath such indications. The sun was high when they sat down to rest. They had seen no one, near or distant, for a long time, and the solitude remained unbroken. "'It's so still here, Rachel, and the way is so untrodden that I think we must be the first who have been here all the summer.' As Sissy said it, her eyes were attracted by another of those rotten fragments of fence upon the ground. She got up to look at it. And yet I don't know. This has not been broken very long. The wood is quite fresh where it gave way. Here are footsteps too. Oh, Rachel! She ran back and caught her round the neck. Rachel had already started up. What's the matter? I don't know. There's a hat lying in the grass. They went forward together. Rachel took it up, shaking from head to foot. She broke into a passion of tears and lamentations. Stephen Blackpool was written in his own hand on the inside. Oh, the poor lad, the poor lad. He's been made away with. He's lying murdered here. Is the, has the hat any blood upon it? Sissy faltered. They were afraid to look, but they did examine it and found no mark of violence inside or out. It had been lying there some days, for rain and dew had stained it, and the mark of its shape was on the grass where it had fallen. They looked fearfully about them, without moving, but could see nothing more. Rachel, Sissy whispered, 
i will go on a little by myself she had unclasped her hand and was in the act of stepping forward when rachel caught her in both arms with a scream that resounded over the wide landscape before them at their very feet was the brink of a black ragged chasm hidden by the thick grass they sprang back and fell upon their knees each hiding her face upon the other's neck oh my good god he's down there down there at first this and her terrific screams were all that could be got from rachel by any tears by any prayers by any representations by any means it was impossible to hush her and it was deadly necessary to hold her or she would have flung herself down the shaft rachel dear rachel good rachel for the love of heaven not these dreadful cries think of stephen think of stephen think of stephen by an earnest repetition of this entreaty poured out in all the agony of such a moment cissy at last brought her to be silent and to look at her with a tearless face of stone rachel stephen may be living you wouldn't leave him at the bottom of this dreadful place a moment if you could bring help to him no 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 don't stir from here for his sake let me go and listen she shuddered to approach the pit but she crept towards it on her hands and knees and called to him as loud as she could call she listened but no sound replied she called again and listened still no answering sound she did this twenty thirty times she took a clod of earth from the broken ground where he had stumbled and threw it in she could not hear it fall the wide prospect so beautiful in its stillness but a few minutes ago almost carried despair to her brave heart as she rose and looked all around her seeing no help rachel we must lose not a moment we must go in different directions seeking aid you shall go by the way we have come and i will go forward by this path tell anyone you see and everyone what has happened think of stephen think of stephen she knew by rachel's face that she might trust her now after standing for a moment to see her running wringing her hands as she ran she turned and went upon her own search she stopped at the hedge to tie her shawl there as a guide to the place then threw her bonnet aside and ran as she had never run before run sissy run in heaven's name don't stop for breath run run quickening herself by carrying such entreaties in her thoughts she ran from field to field and lane to lane and place to place as she had never run before until she came to a shed by an engine-house where two men lay in the shade asleep on straw first to wake them and next to tell them all so wild and breathless as she was what had brought her there were difficulties but they no sooner understood her than their spirits were on fire like hers one of the men was in a drunken slumber but on his comrades shouting to him that a man had fallen down the old hell shaft he started out to a pool of dirty water put his head in it and came back sober with these two men she ran to another half a mile further and with that one to another while they ran elsewhere then a horse was found and she got another man to ride for life or death to the railroad and send a message to louisa which she wrote and gave him by this time a whole village was up and windlasses ropes poles buckets candles lanterns all things necessary were fast collecting and being brought into one place to be carried to the old hell shaft it seemed now hours and hours since she had left the lost man lying in the grave where he had been buried alive 
she could not bear to remain away from it any longer it was like deserting him and she hurried swiftly back accompanied by half a dozen labourers including the drunken man whom the news had sobered and who was the best man of all when they came to the old hell shaft they found it as lonely as she had left it the men called and listened as she had done and examined the edge of the chasm and settled how it had happened and then sat down to wait until the implements they wanted should come up every sound of insects in the air every stirring of the leaves every whisper among these men made sissy tremble for she thought it was a cry at the bottom of the pit but the wind blew idly over it and no sound arose to the surface and they sat upon the grass waiting and waiting after they had waited some time straggling people who had heard of the accident began to come up then the real help of implements began to arrive in the midst of this rachel returned and with her party there was a surgeon who brought some wine and medicines but the expectation among the people that the man would be found alive was very slight indeed there being now people enough present to impede the work the sobered man put himself at the head of the rest or was put there by the general consent and made a large ring round the old hell shaft and appointed men to keep it besides such volunteers as were accepted to work only sissy and rachel were at first permitted within this ring but later in the day when the message brought an express from coketown mr gradgrind and louisa and mr bounderby and the whelp were also there the sun was four hours lower than when sissy and rachel had first sat down upon the grass before a means of enabling two men to descend securely was rigged with poles and ropes difficulties had arisen in the construction of this machine simple as it was requisites had been found wanting and messages had had to go and return it was five o'clock in the afternoon of the bright autumnal sunday before a candle was sent down to try the air while three or four rough faces stood crowded close together attentively watching it the men at the windlass lowering as they were told the candle was brought up again feebly burning and then some water was cast in then the bucket was hooked on and the sobered man and another got in with lights giving the word lure away as the rope went out tight and strained and the windlass creaked there was not a breath among the one or two hundred men and women looking on that came as it was wont to come the signal was given and the windlass stopped with abundant rope to spare apparently so long an interval ensued with the men at the windlass standing idle that some women shrieked that another accident had happened but the surgeon who held the watch declared five minutes not to have elapsed yet and sternly admonished them to keep silence he had not well done speaking when the windlass was reversed and worked again practised eyes knew that it did not go as heavily as it would if both workmen had been coming up and that only one was returning the rope came in tight and strained and ring after ring was coiled upon the barrel of the windlass and all eyes were fastened on the pit the sobered man was brought up and leaped out briskly on the grass there was a universal cry of alive or dead and then a deep profound hush when he said alive a great shout arose and many eyes had tears in them but he's hurt very bad he added as soon as he could make himself heard again wheres doctor he's hurt so very bad sir that we don't know how to get him up they all consulted together and looked anxiously at the surgeon 
as he asked some questions and shook his head on receiving the replies. The sun was setting now, and the red light in the evening sky touched every face there and caused it to be distinctly seen in all its rapt suspense. The consultation ended in the men returning to the windlass and the pitman going down again, carrying the wine and some other small matters with him. Then the other man came up. In the meantime, under the surgeon's directions, some men brought a hurdle on which others made a thick bed of spare clothes covered with loose straw, while he himself contrived some bandages and slings from shawls and handkerchiefs. As these were made, they were hung upon an arm of the pitman who had last come up, with instructions how to use them, and as he stood shown by the light he carried, leaning his powerful loose hand upon one of the poles, and sometimes glancing down the pit, and sometimes glancing round upon the people, he was not the least conspicuous figure in the scene. It was dark now, and torches were kindled. It appeared from the little this man said to those about him, which was quickly repeated all over the circle, that the lost man had fallen upon a mass of crumbled rubbish with which the pit was half choked up, and that his fall had been further broken by some jagged earth at the side. He lay upon his back, with one arm doubled under him, and according to his own belief, had hardly stirred since he fell, except that he had moved his free hand to a side pocket, in which he remembered to have some bread and meat, of which he had swallowed crumbs, and had likewise scooped up a little water in it now and then. He had come straight away from his work on being written to, and had walked the whole journey, and was on his way to Mr. Bounderby's country house after dark when he fell. He was crossing that dangerous country at such a dangerous time, because he was innocent of what was laid to his charge, and couldn't rest from coming the nearest way to deliver himself up. The old hell-shaft, the pitman said, with a curse upon it, was worthy of its bad name to the last. For though Stephen could speak now, he believed it would soon be found to have mangled the life out of him. When all was ready, this man, still taking his last hurried charges from his comrades, and the surgeon, after the windlass had begun to lower him, disappeared into the pit. The rope went out as before, the signal was made as before, and the windlass stopped. No man removed his hand from it now, everyone waited with his grasp set, and his body bent down to the work, ready to reverse and wind in. At length the signal was given, and all the ring leaned forward, for now the rope came in, tightened and strained to its utmost as it appeared, and the men turned heavily, and the windlass complained. It was scarcely endurable to look at the rope and think of its giving way, but ring after ring was coiled upon the barrel of the windlass safely, and the connecting chains appeared. And finally, the bucket with the two men holding on at the sides, a sight to make the head swim and oppress the heart, and tenderly supporting between them, slung and tied within, the figure of a poor, crushed human creature. A low murmur of pity went round the throng, and the women wept aloud as this form, almost without form, was moved very slowly from its iron deliverance and laid upon the bed of straw. At first, none but the surgeon went close to it. He did what he could in its adjustment on the couch, but the best that he could do was to cover it. That gently done, he called to him Rachel and Sissy, and at that time the pale, worn, patient face was seen looking up at the sky, with the broken right hand laying bare on the outside of the covering garments, 
as if waiting to be taken by another hand. They gave him drink, moistened his face with water, and administered some drops of cordial and wine. Though he lay quite motionless, looking up at the sky, he smiled and said, Rachel. She stooped down on the grass at his side, and bent over him until her eyes were between his and the sky, for he could not so much as turn them to look at her. Rachel, my dear. She took his hand, he smiled again, and said, Don't let it go. That's in great pain, my own dear Stephen. I have been, but not now. I have been dreadful, and dree, and long, me dear. But tis o'er now. Ah, Rachel, oh, muddle, for a first to last, a muddle. The spectre of his old look seemed to pass as he said the word. I fell into th' pit, me dear, as of cost, with knowledge o' old folk now living, hundreds and hundreds of men's lives, fathers, sons, brothers, dear to thousands and thousands, and keeping em for a once and hunger, I have fell into a pit that a been with fire damp crueller than battle. I a read on in th' public petition, as only one may read, for th' men that works in pits, in which they are praying and praying the lawmakers, for Christ's sake, not to let their work be murder to em, but to spare em for th' wives and children that they loves, as well as gentlefolk loves theirs. When it were in work, it killed without need. When tis let alone, it kills without need. See how we die, and no need, one way and another, in a muddle, every day. He faintly said it, without any anger against anyone, merely as the truth. Thy little sister, Rachel, thou hast not forgot her. Thou art not like to forget her now, and me so nigh Thou knowest, poor, patient, suffering, dear, how thou didst work for her, seating all day long in a little chair at the window, and she died, young and misshapen, all longer sickly air as hadn't no need to be and all longer walking people's miserable homes. A muddle, or a muddle. Louisa approached him, but he could not see her, lying with his face turned up to the night sky. If all things that touches us, my dear, was not so muddled, I shouldn't have had need to come here. If it was not in a muddle among ourselves, I shouldn't have been by my own fellow weavers and working brothers so mistook. If Mr. Bounderby had ever knowed me right, if he'd ever knowed me at all, he wouldn't have took offence with me, he wouldn't have suspected me. Well, look up yonder, Rachel, look above. Following his eyes, she saw that he was gazing at a star. It has shined upon me, he said reverently, in my pain and trouble down below. It has shined into my mind. I a looking at it, and thought of thee, Rachel till the muddle in my mind have cleared away above and a bit i hope if some have been wanting in understanding me better i too have been wanting in understanding them better when i got thy letter i easily believing that what the young lady sen and done to me and what her brother sen and done to me was one and that there were a wicked plot betwixt them when i fell i were in anger with her and hurrying on to be as unjust to her as others was to me but in our judgments like as in our doings 
we mun bear and forbear in my pain and trouble looking up yonder wi it shining on me i ha seen more clear and ha made it my dying prayer that all the world may only come together more and get a better understanding o' one another than when i were int my own weak self louisa hearing what he said bent over him on the opposite side to rachel so that he could see her you heard he said after a few moments silence i have not forgot you lady yes stephen i have heard you and your prayer is mine you are a favour will you tack a message to him he is here said louisa with dread shall i bring him to you if you please louisa returned with her father standing hand in hand they both looked down upon the solemn countenance sir he will clear me and that may name good we are met this i leave to you mr gradgrind was troubled and asked how sir was the reply your son will tell you how ask him i'm at no charges i leave none ahint me not a single word i have seen and spoken wi your son one night i ask no more o you than that you clear me and i trust to you to do it the bearers being now ready to carry him away and the surgeon being anxious for his removal those who had torches or lanterns prepared to go in front of the litter before it was raised and while they were arranging how to go he said to rachel looking upward at the star often as i come to me selm and found it shining on me down there in my trouble i thought it were the star as guided to our saviour's home i almost think it be the very star they lifted him up and he was overjoyed to find that they were about to take him in the direction whither the star seemed to him to lead rachel beloved lass don't let go my hand we may walk together to-night my dear i will hold thy hand and keep beside thee stephen all the way bless thee will somebody be pleased to cover me face they carried him very gently along the fields and down the lanes and over the wide landscape rachel always holding the hand in hers very few whispers broke the mournful silence it was soon a funeral procession the star had shown him where to find the god of the poor and through humility and sorrow and forgiveness he had gone to his redeemer's rest end of part nineteen